Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are witnesses to the power of your word. And we pray this morning that we would bear witness again to that fact as we come to your word now together. And please show us truth and wisdom and beauty that lasts beyond every generation into the next. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago now, um, a man in Sheffield um, said to one of his friends, uh, who wasn't a Christian, Christian man to one of his non-Christian friends, he invited him to come to church with him. His friend said no. And so a little while later, he invited him to come to church with him again. He said no. And a little while after that, he said to him again, would you come to church with me? And his non-Christian friend said to him, no. And he said, more than that, If you ask me again, it will be the end of our friendship. And so, a little while after that, again, he asked him to come to church. And his friend said to him, look, I'm really sorry, but last time you asked me, I told you that if you asked me again, it would be the end of our friendship. And the Christian man said to him, I know, but this is more important than our friendship. Now, as you think of those uh, who aren't Christians, who are your nearest, your dearest, uh, your closest friends, I wonder, would you have asked again? Would I? This morning, our focus is on telling others, namely telling others the gospel of Jesus. But why we would tell others won't ever make sense until we understand what makes it good news. Think back a year ago. Unless you had been watching the news very closely, you probably wouldn't have even been aware of a virus breaking out in China. It hadn't even been given the name COVID-19 yet, so none of us knew that name. Um, That's a nice thing to think back to, isn't it? Now imagine back at that time, someone excitedly coming over to you and saying, I've got great news, I've got great news. Guess what? In summer 2021 you're going to be able to leave your house for no particular reason. Isn't that amazing? You're going to be able to go out to the pub and have a drink, to a restaurant to have a meal. The kids are going to be able to hug granny again. It's going to be amazing. And guess what? Even maybe best of all, you can just go for a walk around the park with people from up to two households or more. Isn't that amazing? Now, you would have looked back at them blandly and thought, oh, they're completely nuts. They're crazy. Of course you would. And the point is this, the good news doesn't make sense unless you know the bad news. Telling others the gospel doesn't make sense unless you see why everyone needs it. And so in the next few minutes, looking at the teaching of Jesus in Mark's gospel, we're going to dive deep into seeing and understanding the bad news of the human condition. And it should, it will feel pretty uncomfortable because it's ugly and we won't want to believe it's true. But these are the words of the most loving man who ever lived. And he tells us these truths because he loves us and because he knows it's more loving to give us the truth we need than the fiction we want. And so if you find what Jesus says hard to hear, you're right to. 
it's because you're hearing correctly. But don't, for that reason, tune out or switch off, either literally or metaphorically as it happens. Because after the bad news comes the good news, the greatest news. And it is all the sweeter for having seen why we need it. And so the first thing we see from Jesus this morning is this. Our hearts are sick with sin. Mark chapter 7. And we read there these words. Jesus went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, the context of this is that Jesus is speaking to, responding to some religious leaders of his day who had been criticizing his disciples for having not washed their hands before eating. Now, they weren't concerned about hygiene or hands, face, space, anything like that. Their concern was about a ceremonial washing, a a religious duty performing that his disciples apparently have overlooked And so in response, Jesus criticizes them for being obsessed with rule-keeping, with the external, visible things that people do, when what really matters is the internal, invisible condition of our hearts. He says, look deeper and you'll see that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It is full to overflowing with evil. Now, this isn't something that we like to hear. We much prefer to blame those things around us. Um, Look at this mug of water that I have here. Now, imagine that this mug is our hearts and inside is our sin. We much prefer to think that when we do things that we know we shouldn't, it's because of the external conditions that we face, things that happen to us. They come along and bump us. And out spills sin. And so we blame the things that have happened to us. I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, I know I I lied, but I was under a lot of pressure at the time. And blame the circumstances. I know I flipped out, but I was really tired at the time. I know I got really angry with that driver, but it was my right of way and they cut me up. And so we blame the circumstances. But the teaching of Jesus in these verses is that actually the circumstances didn't put the sin in our hearts. They simply exposed the sin that was already there. And with just the right bump, it comes out and exposes what's really inside. But of course, uh, Jesus then goes on and lists this list of sins that lurks in our hearts. A difficult list to read. But if you're anything like me, and I think probably in this respect, we all are, we each have this little lawyer in our heads. And his job, as soon as we're accused of anything, is to jump to our defense and explain away and downplay and diminish our responsibility for the things that we have done. And so perhaps it's for exactly that reason that the first thing Jesus lists here is evil thoughts. 
Perhaps if he had put murder or adultery or theft first, I might have started mentally ticking those off as things I hadn't done. But no, he puts first evil thoughts. And so we all, if we know ourselves at all, fall at the first hurdle. All of us are nailed on the very first charge. But of course, Jesus' point isn't that we have to have done or or not done these things to be guilty of them. His point is that every human heart is filled with evil, filled with the potential to enact the sin that is in our hearts. And with just the right series or combination of bumps, it would come spilling out of all of us. And that is a difficult thing for us to accept or admit. But part of being a follower of Jesus is to come to terms with the truth that this is the condition of my heart. It does describe me. We have to own our sin. A couple of chapters later in Mark's gospel, Jesus makes clear the consequences of our sins. And again, this makes hard reading. First of all, our hearts are sick with sin. Secondly, sin leads to certain death. Look at these words of Jesus in Mark 9. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. We need to be very clear what it is that Jesus is teaching in those verses. He's not suggesting that people actually start cutting off their limbs. Even if they did, we've just seen that the problem is not with our hands or our feet or our eyes, but it's with our heart. And so amputation could never remove the source of the problem. That's not what he's suggesting. No, Jesus' point is this. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled or with only one eye than it is to be thrown into hell, a place in which he describes eternal torment and suffering. And so he urges us to take drastic steps in the short term, painful steps, in order to avoid that fate. Cut this thing out of your life now, as painful as it might be, because you want to avoid something far worse in the future. Cut yourself off from that situation that's leading you away from me, even if it hurts terribly, for the sake of your eternity. These are, I think, perhaps the most difficult words to hear in all of Mark's gospel. And to name the obvious, they're difficult to hear because all of us have those who we love, friends, families, spouses, who we know haven't submitted to Jesus as Lord. And we are deeply troubled, if we're listening to Jesus at all, at the thought that this might be their fate, especially when we know we're no better, really. But Jesus gives us this warning in these very stark terms because he's desperate for us to avoid this fate. 
But we might recoil at the thought that our sins might have ever deserved such punishment in the first place. Often when I'm describing uh, Christianity and explaining it to people who aren't Christians, as I was doing just earlier this week, and this happened, this is the sticking point. And it may be for us as well that we don't want to believe that our sins might deserve so severe a punishment. We feel as though the punishment doesn't fit the crime. But if we believe that God is good and just as we do, that means the punishment must fit the crime. And so either we've exaggerated the punishment, but as we look at Jesus' words, it's clear that that's not what we're doing, or we have underestimated the crime. And the consistent message of the Bible is that it's the latter. Our sins are far more terrible than we like to believe. The defense lawyer in our heads gets to work at excusing or downplaying or distancing us from our sins because we don't want to be guilty or to bear the consequences of our guilt. But the heart of sin is not the harm that I've caused to others, serious though that is. It's the act of cosmic treason that lies behind my behavior. When I speak cruelly about another person, I offend against them, of course, but I also offend against my God who tells me to love my neighbor. When I tell a lie, I'm offending against the person I tell it to, but also against the God who commands me to tell the truth. And so throughout my life, in every passing hour of every day, I've been routinely rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, either by the things I've done, which I shouldn't have done, or the things that I haven't done, which I should have, as we confessed earlier in this service. Or perhaps by the things that I've thought, or not thought, or said, or not said. Frankly, it's like I stick two fingers up in God's face and say, I'm going to live my way, not yours. All this against one who is my good, loving, perfect creator, who has always been working for my good. It's like a parent who loves their child, loves their child, loves their child, but only ever receives back venom and fury and hate. Or perhaps just as bad, they completely cut them off, move out and never speak to them again. That's how I've treated God. That is how I still treat God. More often than I realize or would care to admit if I did. It's how we've all treated him. And so the punishment for cosmic treason is eternal exile removed from the source of life and blessing. It is a terrible punishment. But it's one that if we could see our sin in its full detail and color and definition, we would be forced to admit fits the crime. It takes all of us time, often much time, to come to terms with what the Bible says about our hearts and what our sins deserve. Perhaps we never really do fully come to terms with it. And this may be an example of what we were considering last week and again on Wednesday at Small Group Central about how we respond when we don't understand or like something we read in the Bible. We trust that these are the words of our God who loves us and is out for our good and never lies or seeks to harm us.
But there is one more step we need to see in seeing the seriousness of the human condition. And that is this, we cannot save ourselves. A man who is morally impeccable comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. But for all his good deeds, he's not free from sin because he loves his money more than God. And so Jesus says of him these words in Mark 10. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. And in that answer is bad news, but also the glimmer of good news. Bad news because he says we cannot save ourselves. No, he doesn't say it's hard but doable, doesn't say, you know, give it enough time, really work at it, and maybe, he says it's impossible, it cannot be done. We cannot save ourselves. But, not with God, Jesus said. All things are possible with God. And there comes the first shaft of light. So what we've seen so far, our hearts are sick with sin, sin leads to certain death, and we cannot save ourselves. It would seem to be game over for humanity, a a dark and hopeless situation. And the reason we've spent so much time on this this morning is that knowing this uh, is essential to making sense of the gospel. If we don't know that our hearts are sick with sin, we won't see what our problem is. If we don't see that sin sin leads to certain death, we won't see why it's so serious. If we don't see we cannot save ourselves, then we might go about trying to do exactly that. And all of it makes a a nonsense of the cross and why Jesus had to die. We have to see these things for the gospel to make sense. But against this backdrop, the sweetness of the gospel becomes clear. Jesus doesn't just tell us the problem, he provides us with the solution. And so let's turn to see that good news now. Here's our fourth point. Jesus came to ransom many. Look at Mark 10 verse 45. There, Jesus says this, for even the son of man, a reference to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment made to set someone free. Like when pirates have a hostage, they demand a million dollars to let this person go. But what possible price could be paid to set us free from the punishment for our sins? Only one thing. Look what Jesus gave. His life as a ransom. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't a mistake. It was the fulfillment of a plan. He didn't give his life merely as an example of how we should love each other as those who deny the seriousness of our sin are bound to conclude, but as a ransom for us. He saved us from the jaws of hell by throwing himself into them. This is the amazing love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to collude since before the foundation of the world that Jesus would come and bleed and suffer and die and bear the crushing weight of human sin 
to save us and give us life and peace and joy beyond measure. And to show that love, not to loyal subjects, but to cosmic rebels against his loving rule. That is love. We have never seen such love before. We never will again. It's not just something for others, it's something he did for me. I, Chris, was a man bound for hell because of my sins. But Jesus snatched me from that fate and threw himself in the way of the coming judgment. And on the cross, that judgment thundered down on him. And he did it for love. He did it for you. He did it for many. And such love, such a salvation for so many is something we cannot, we will not keep to ourselves. We see that carried out in the life of the early church. And so very briefly, consider with me the trajectory of the book of Acts, which records the life of the early church. Just a reminder of what we've seen so far. Our hearts are sick with sin. Sin leads to certain death and we cannot save ourselves, but Jesus has come to ransom many. And finally, we are his witnesses. Moments before Jesus returned to heaven, his parting words to his disciples were these in Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you were to plot those places on a map, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, they're like concentric circles, like the ripples that go out from a pond when you drop a pebble in it. The ripples go out. And the point is that the word is going to spread through those places to the ends of the earth. And the rest of Acts is the gospel message going out. We see this repeated refrain through Acts that the word spread, the word of God spread, the word of the Lord spread and carried on spreading. And this is where the trajectory goes. It's though, as though the church today is living in Acts chapter 29. The book of Acts in the Bible only has 28 chapters. And yet we're living in the 29th because we are part of the ongoing story and mission of the church that began as, and was, was recorded in those first 28 chapters of Acts. In fact, there is an organization that supports the planting of churches that is called Acts 29 for exactly this reason. We continue to carry on that same task that Jesus left the church to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Our mission here at OPC is to be part of the ongoing global movement of God making known the good news of Jesus. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than our parish or our diocese or our country. It goes to the ends of the earth. And it is bigger than the few years that you or I walk the earth. The mission continues and we as a church, in response to ourselves being saved, in loving obedience to our saviour Jesus, and for the love of those who continue to live in terrible danger, must 
take up and continue that task that Jesus left us of telling others. And so this is what we have seen this morning. Our hearts are sick with sin. Sin leads to certain death and we cannot save ourselves. But Jesus came to ransom many and now we are his witnesses. So how will we respond to this news? Well, if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, thank you for continuing to listen. I want to say to you, if you have never owned your sin, never really understood the danger it puts you in, and so have never turned to Jesus, if you've never recognized that he is the rightful king of your life, never asked him to forgive you of your sin and to help you now to change and to live under his good and loving rule. Do that now. In your front room, wherever you are, on your sofa, watching on your phone, I don't know, do that now. Put your trust in him and when you turn off this stream, you will be a forgiven person, safe and secure with him. Do that today. And for those of us who are Christians, remember back to that opening story about the man who asked his friend to come to church. He said, if you ask me one more time, it'll be the end of our friendship. He asked him again. Would you have asked again? In light of what we've been looking at this morning, would you now? You see, The question really is, do we believe that others' relationship with God, their eternity, is more important than our friendships with them? Than their good opinion of us? When that Christian man asked his friend again and told him that this was more important than their friendship, his friend actually didn't end their friendship there as he threatened. The sheer persistence of his friend helped him to see that he really believed this was very important. And so he did go to church with them. And he became a Christian. And just recently, he has retired after decades of himself being a vicar and leading many others to faith. And now look, what a wonderful ending to the story, right? But of course it might have ended differently. My guess is that more often than not, it would have done. And with that knowledge, would you have asked again? The point is not to guilt us all into inviting people to church, although inviting people to church is a great thing to do, so do that. The point is to see honestly what we think matters most and how important we really believe that it is that people turn to Jesus. And so in that spirit, one last time, would you have asked? Will we be a church that is clear on the gospel and who take up the mission to be witnesses of Jesus in our day? If we are to be that kind of a church, I'll need you to encourage me and remind me of the things we've been looking at this morning because my heart is slow and fickle too. And we'll need to do that for each other, not being afraid of the bad news, 
the bad news of the human condition because we also have the spectacularly good news of Jesus who came as a ransom for many. May we be that kind of church and so may the word of God spread through these villages far beyond and to the ends of the earth for the glory of Jesus. I'm going to leave a few moments of quiet for us to reflect and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can trust what you say to us, that your words are good and true and wise. And so having heard some hard words from Jesus this morning, we pray that you would give us faith to believe what he says about us and what he says about himself and our need to respond to him. We pray that you would convict us deeply as a church of the truth of the gospel and the need of every man and woman and boy and girl to bow the knee to him as king. And so please, Father, would we be a church who go, who tell others the gospel that has been told to us. And so would your word spread and along with it, your fame and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.